0: This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see
1: Johncast.net.
0: So for this week's JodBite, we're interviewing a Fulbright scholar and a current Newton Fellowship holder here at the University of Manchester, Dr. Tana Joseph. Hi, Tana. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I was wondering, Tana, what are you
1: working on right now? Oh, so right now, that's a really fun, interesting question, because I am adding things to my research portfolio, which is always fun. So for the moment, or when I first started working here, my main focus was on trying to find what we call low mass x-ray binaries in two dwarf galaxies that are only visible in the southern hemisphere. So Laura and I Obviously, we're both... Well, I say obviously, if you've not picked up from our accent, (laughs) we're both from uh, the Southern Hemisphere, from South Africa and Australia, which is also where we are building the square kilometer array in Mm -hmm. South Africa and Australia. Yeah, so we're very excited about that. And there's a lot of awesome astronomy happening in the Southern Hemisphere right now. And one of the cool things is in the Southern Hemisphere, you can see these two dwarf galaxies called the Magellanic Clouds. And they're so close, you can actually see them with the naked eye if you're in a sufficiently dark place. Um, you can't see them at all from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, the SKA precursors, ASCAP and Meerkat, are perfectly placed to observe these galaxies. And they have done, or at least ASCAP has done, and I'm going to use this radio data to look for low-mass X-ray binaries, especially in the small Magellanic Cloud, the large Magellanic Cloud, we know has one low-mass X-ray binary. And the small Magellanic Cloud doesn't have any that we know of. So my main thrust of my research initially was to try and find these populations of low-mass X-ray binaries. But what's so exciting now is that SKA precursors and other big astronomy projects, I mean, other wavelengths like X-ray, are allowing us to not just do that, but to do other interesting stuff related to gravitational waves. And I'm tying to now with a whole team of new collaborators, we would really like to start doing work where we study the chemical composition of the Magellanic Clouds, And these very massive stars that we found in the large Magellanic Cloud, when I say very massive, I mean 200 to 300 times the mass of our sun, which is significantly heavier than we thought stars could get up to. And high mass X-ray binaries in the Magellanic Clouds, because these pieces altogether are things that we think will contribute to making gravitational wave sources that we can detect with LIGO, which won a Nobel Prize very recently so we're moving into multi-messenger astronomy by using SKA precursor data like wow that's, yeah it's that's a lot. so cool yeah um, so I have a lot of questions first of all
0: I guess what is an x-ray binary and what do you mean by low and high mass because I mean we yeah. astronomers we use kind of these hand-wavy mm-hmm. terms but does that have sort of like a line in between what's low and high and what does it mean by x-ray binary
1: yeah so that's a very good question and it's something that catches out even professional astronomers if you don't work in that field. So whenever I give a talk, I always make sure that I have one slide where I explain exactly this. So when we talk about low mass versus high mass X-ray binaries, and that is actually how we separate them out in academic research, it's as simple as a binary. Where So a binary star is two stars, and they're orbiting each other, and they're gravitationally bound together. And in the case of X-ray binaries, one of the components... Of this binary, so one of the stars is actually a dead star. So either a neutron star or a black hole. And the other star, material from that star is being pulled off via gravity onto the neutron star or the black hole. And as that material falls towards the neutron star or black hole, it heats up to about 10 million degrees and gives off X-rays. And that's what we study, because obviously you can ask yourself, but It's a black hole. How can you see a black hole? So you don't see the black hole itself, but you see the material as it falls towards the black hole or the neutron star. And that's how you know there's something there that's very energetic, that has very strong gravitational pull. And that's what's causing all this matter to be pulled off from the companion star or the donor star. So that's what an X-ray binary is. And the difference between high mass and low mass X-ray binaries has nothing to do with the neutron star or the black hole's mass but has everything to do with the donor or companion star's mass. So the star that you probably think of as less interesting actually determines a lot about how the binary star behaves and what kind of emission, so light, that we see coming from these stars and also the lifetime even of these binary systems. So a high mass X-ray binary is an X-ray binary that has a donor or companion star that's at least about 10 times the mass of our sun. A low mass X-ray binary is a binary comprised of a black hole or neutron star and a companion or donor star that's not more than about one or two times the mass of our sun. And the in-between range, the 2 to 10 solar mass range, or we call them intermediate mass binaries, there are very few of them known and we don't really work on them that much. And the reason why we don't know of very many and they're hard to study is because the kind of mass transfer that happens onto the neutron star or black hole from the donor star where the uh, material is being pulled off. It happens very quickly and very abruptly and it's very difficult to actually see that happening because the time scale over which that happens is so short that it's kind of a blink and you miss it situation. Mm-hmm. So th- those are the categories of x-ray binaries.
0: So I guess these things, they're called x-ray binaries. Does that mean you always see them in x-ray or that they could be I guess, invisible or not on in x-rays for a bit, and then you
1: just happen to get lucky. I guess, how do you find these things? So again, whether you see them or not, in x-ray comes down to whether it's a low mass or a high mass x-ray binary. Mm-hmm. So low mass x-ray binaries tend to always sort of be on at some level in x-rays, mm-hmm. uh, but you can also get radio emission from them in the form of jets. High mass x-ray binaries tend to have more periodic, not periodic in the sense of a pulsar, that it's like you can actually set your clock by it, But the X-ray light that comes from it comes in big flares Mm -hmm. and comes in um, bursts or or flares or episodes rather than it being consistently on. And then there's also the X-ray emission from these systems also changes depending on whether the compact object is a neutron star or black hole. That also produces a certain kind of emission that has very sort of set paths to follow and that's actually a way you can tell the difference between whether it's a neutron star or a black hole as Mm -hmm. the other uh, as the compact object component that's pulling material from the donor star and then like I said you can see some radio jets or radio flares depending on if it's a high mass x-ray binary system you can have a lot of optical light as well some of these systems can be seen in gamma rays so these are really multi-wavelength objects but they are particularly bright in x-rays.
0: Okay, cool. So you mentioned the Magellanic Clouds. So they're kind of like our mini galaxies next to our own galaxy Mm -hmm. or slash getting eaten by our galaxy. Um, But you mentioned that there's one X-ray binary in one of them, but not in the other. Is there a reason for that? Is it expected? Would you expect to see someone you aren't? Or is it kind of okay? We're like, oh, yeah, we don't see one, but oh, well. Um, Or is that something interesting that maybe is missing?
1: So the short answer is there something is missing. Mm -hmm. So the Large Magellanic Cloud has one low-mass X-ray binary that we know of, and the small Magellanic Cloud has none. And from our sort of calculations and extrapolations from our own galaxy, which is much bigger than the Magellanic Clouds, which is why we call them dwarf galaxies, we expect that there should be about between 5 and 10 of these low-mass X-ray binaries in the small Magellanic Cloud, um, and they'd be on the faint end, so really faint Mm -hmm. in radio and X-ray, so not a lot of um, light coming from them. And this is why... It's so great that we have Meerkat and ASCAP, the SKA precursors, because they're the most powerful and sensitive radio interferometers, certainly in the Southern Hemisphere. And so now we finally have the technology to go and look for these really, really faint sources. Mm -hmm. And we expect them to be there. And we expect to find a a few, like a handful. And it'll be really interesting because if we do find these systems, these low mass X-ray binaries in the small Magellanic Cloud. The small Magellanic Cloud will then become the first galaxy that will have a complete sample of different types of X-ray binaries in it. It's so close that we can actually study um, them in really fine detail. We can learn a lot about the donor star and so on and do some really detailed astronomy in terms of binary research. So if you find these are there, does that tell you about the Magellanic Cloud itself
0: and maybe that can tell you about other galaxies or is it more about those individual systems?
1: Um, It's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. So whether we find them or not will tell us something about how binary stars form, how they change, how they grow. If we find, say for instance, we expect to find 10, but we find 20, Mm -hmm. that tells us that maybe we don't quite understand how binary stars form and grow. And actually there's some mechanism maybe that we're overlooking in terms of formation. If we find one and we're expecting to find 10, then that also tells us something. Then again, we've, we've not really understood the whole picture Of how these systems actually come about. And one thing that's interesting about the Magellanic Clouds compared to our galaxy, the Milky Way, is that the Magellanic Clouds have a lot less heavy elements in them compared to the abundances that you find in the Milky Way galaxy, in Mm -hmm. our galaxy. So there are fewer what we call metals in astronomy. So in astronomy, a metal is anything that's not hydrogen and helium. Yeah, we're a bit vague like that. Yeah. <laughs> so what we have in the Magellanic Clouds is that um, they have about one-fifth the metal abundance um, that the, than what the galaxy or the Milky Way has. And so with different kinds of abundances like that of oxygen and carbon and all that kind of stuff, you get different types of stars forming. And then you get different types of things like the supernova mechanisms might be different. So different kinds of physics due to the different kinds of materials that make up the stars. And so if we find things are slightly different than we anticipated, given that we're extrapolating from our galaxy, then we can start to also probe the role that uh, metals or chemical composition plays in how stars love and die and form.
0: So you also mentioned some 200 solar mass stars. Mm -hmm. And to me, so a star that's 200 times the mass of the sun. And to me, that sounds crazy. That's not something you learn about in Astronomy 101. We talk about, you know, 20 solar masses, that sort of thing is okay. But then bigger than that, you go, wait, what? So
1: do we have evidence of those things? And how the heck did they get there? So those are really interesting questions. And it's only quite recently, I would say in the last five years or so, that Mm -hmm. we've come to realize that there's a significant population of 200 to 300 solar mass stars in the Magellanic Clouds, in the Large Magellanic Clouds. So, our models of understanding again of how stars are formed and how they uh, change their mass with blowing off winds or coronal mass ejections or transferring matter to a neutron star, black hole, for instance, or some other star, we figure out well, we look at all these things and we're like, okay, so putting all these things together from looking at old stars. this is probably how much they must have weighed when they were born or looking in places where new stars are formed. We're like, okay, this is how much they weigh given how much light we're getting from them. But a lot of these things, when we look at them, they're actually being done in our own galaxy. And as I just mentioned, the Magellanic Clouds are made up of different kinds of material or different abundances of material compared to our galaxy. So, and that actually influences how big you can make a star when it's born. So in standard stellar initial mass, Uh, models imply or say that 150 solar masses, so something 150 times the mass of our sun is sort of the upper limit of a normal quote unquote star that you would expect. Like that's a heavy star. Then we look in the large Magellanic cloud and we found that there are these significant number of stars. So not hundreds, but certainly more than we thought between 150 or 200 and 300 solar masses. So this is using optical data. And it was a huge surprise and not something we expected, and these stars are massive, and they, the bigger star is, paradoxically, the shorter its lifetime. So these stars are, if you see them, they must be very young, comparatively compared to smaller stars, certainly like stars like our sun. So catching them means that they're very young, and we don't have a good handle on how they could have formed, how they could have actually accumulated that mass in the protostar phase. So we think that the metallicity, the low metallicity, has something to do with that, because We also um, have some idea of how stars, these massive stars especially, lose mass. So they have these big winds of material that blow off the surface of them because they're so hot. And the more metals that are in your star, the stronger these winds and the brighter these winds and the more mass they lose. But if you have low metallicity, you're not going to have as strong winds and you're not going to lose as much mass. So it's not surprising if you think about it from that point of view that you would see them in low metallicity environments like the Large Magellanic Cloud, compared to higher metallicity environments like our galaxy. So these are all things now, lessons that we're having to learn. We're having to change our theories and our models to actually fit in with detections and observations. And that's always fun. People, I think, sometimes get the idea that scientists are very married to or very committed to certain models. And for some people, that might be true. But it's almost always way more exciting when you find something that breaks your model, or challenges your understanding of how the universe works or how anything works. Because then that means you have more questions to answer, which is what we do for a living. Yeah, for sure. I think we're
0: more excited when something goes wrong than yeah. when we go, oh yeah, okay, fine, it was what we expected. And when we find something not ex- we're not expecting, we go like,
1: whoa, what? Yeah. yes, <laughs> more things yeah. to learn. And just for the listener, I can't say too much, but Laura herself is sitting on something <laughs> that's kind of interesting. So stay tuned if you want to learn more about things that are busting our understanding of things that we kind of thought we had a handle on um, in the upcoming months. Laura might have her own story about that.
0: For sure. I'll make sure I I put it on the Jodcast when it can. But I think as well, I think on the Jodcast as well, because we've got a lot of radio astronomers, we talk a lot about pulsars and, and black holes and that sort of thing, and we make it sound very exciting. But I think a lot of us don't really think about how exciting... "Quote unquote," normal stars are, Mm -hmm. and how much we still have to learn because we think, you know, the sun's right there, so we know everything. But that's definitely not the case. We're definitely working. Absolutely,
1: (laughs) and I mean it's the it's the case that if you just used one star to Mm -hmm. try and explain all of the stars, you're going to run into some serious problems. And sometimes we lose sight of that as scientists. You know, we make do with what we with the technology that we have. We're limited by that. We're limited by things in our galaxy. Things that are too far away to really study in detail. So we we're, we're making, um, you know, making the best of the tools that with the tools that we have and the information that we have. But with these fantastic, we can't call them next generation instruments anymore. Current generation yeah, right instruments <laughs> that are very new and are starting to take data. And are starting to give us more insight into the universe. It's a really fun time to be doing astronomy because it's not just the SKA and its precursors as radio interferometers. It's also Gaia, the Gaia Project, that's given us a whole new insight into our own galaxy and the stars that make up our own galaxy. And then there's the LIGO, so the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Waves Observatory, um, which discovered gra- direct evidence for gravitational waves, and they won the Nobel Prize. And they've just started a few days ago their third observing run, so we're going to see a lot more fun, exciting stuff coming out of that. <laughs> more black holes. Yes. <laughs> or more neutron stars. Yes, neutron star merges. That yeah, neutron so star mergers, because that's, you know, the double neutron star is how we actually found indirect evidence for gravitational waves and also won a Nobel Prize several decades ago. And so as Pulsar people and as neutron star people here at JBCA, we're super excited about that. So, you know, we think it's high time that the gravitational waves people catch up. Yes, I think so. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like we we knew, you know, we made neutron stars happen. So they need to hurry up and also, you know, give us some more information. There's so much more to learn and all these current generation instruments. And if you think about it, I guess, next generation, because SKA will, falls under next generation. Yeah, it's still being built. And it's still being on built, to, but the precursors right. are current and mm-hmm. already being fantastic, and LIGO's doing a lot of interesting stuff. So it's just a really interesting time to be doing astronomy and to be branching out of our what we thought would be our set research yes, areas. For sure.
0: <laughs> for sure. We're, all, we're all branching out to different things, lots of different things now. So it sounds like you have a lot of work to do. But I also know that you work a lot on outreach and science communication and things like that and that you have your own business actually. Do you want to
1: tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah so I'm very passionate about science engagement and science communication with the public and especially with you know with communities or with groups of people who traditionally aren't seen as scientists or even worse you way, know, don't see themselves as scientists. So I always like to, have audiences that are diverse and made up of um, young women or people of color who don't normally have access to STEM materials or STEM education, etc. And I really love talking to people and getting them excited about science because I'm very excited about science. And, and I was from a very young age and I was very lucky because both my parents were high school science teachers. So that kind of thing was always something that, you know, was talked about in the home. And not everyone has that. But now with the advent of the internet and especially things like citizen science, it's becoming easier and easier for people to get involved in science. And with my company, what the idea of it is that it's a science communication and consulting company. And that sounds like a lot of jargon, but basically what I do is I provide science input or technical input and support in any kind of context that requires it for people who don't have a technical background. So one of my clients or my first client was someone who saw me give a talk at the Blue Dot Festival. So those of you who are interested in science and live music and really like the festival scene, especially in the UK summers, the famous festival scene, the Blue Dot Festival is a science and music festival hosted at the Jodrell Bank Observatory over a weekend in July. And it's fantastic. I had a great time. Laura and I were there helping as volunteers. It's super awesome fun for the whole family. There's so much to do. And I gave a talk there last year and one of the audience members found me on LinkedIn and hired me to come give a talk about big data in the SKA era in astronomy. And that was my first engagement for my company, which is called Astrocoms. And so that is an example of the science communication. And then the science consulting would be things like Giving technical input or being the technical lead on, for instance, a TV show or a movie. If you look at movies like Arrival, which I absolutely love, Gravity, those kind of movies. The script writers don't know about science or, you know, the science of microgravity and spaceships and all of that. So they get someone like Kip Thorne, mm-hmm. who won yeah. a Nobel Prize for his work with discovering gravitational waves with LIGO. He was actually the science consultant on... Was it Gravity? I think it was Gravity. Or was it we Interstellar? check that one. Either Gravity <laughs> or Interstellar. Mm-hmm. And both those movies were given high praise for having such good representation of the science and of the technical side. Like, things were really spot on. And that's because they had someone like Kip Thorne, who subsequently became a Nobel Prize winner, giving them a lot of input. So I do that as well. So if you don't have... My joke is if you don't have interstellar budget money, then you probably can't afford Kip Thorne. But you can afford me... <laughs>
0: For sure, you do do an excellent job too, so that's an extra bonus.
1: Um, Yeah, I also have a PhD, and um, so I'm in talks with someone who's just started their own production company Mm -hmm. to get more into that side of things. And those are just kind of some of the examples of the work that I do with my company, but I'm still very committed to doing school talks. I'm very active on social media, answering any questions um, that people may have. And people have a lot of interesting questions, especially we're so lucky as astronomers Mm -hmm. to have that particular science that people just really love and connect to. And especially in terms of things like indigenous astronomy, Mm -hmm. in a lot of cultures, astronomy has a very important cultural significance and it's starting to be explored now. And as astronomers, we try and promote that as well because it just shows that the night skies and the happenings of the night sky have been important to people across the globe for millennia. And it brings us all together. Like we're all under one beautiful big sky as people. We all look up and wonder.
0: So I guess if somebody wanted to ask you a question, maybe Twitter or something like that, where would they go?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes. I'm on Twitter and my DMs are not open, but if you tweet at me, I'll tweet back. Um, So my handle is at Tana D Joseph. And yeah, I'm always happy to answer questions. It's great to chat with people especially people who feel quite removed from science and one way to get involved in science as I mentioned earlier something called citizen science where we actually desperately as scientists need the public to help us because when we talk about these current and next generation fantastic instruments what we actually have is too much data oh yeah absolutely too so much, much data <laughs> and not enough scientists to actually wade through that data so if you are a school kid or you're a stay-at-home parent, or you are an accountant out somewhere, or a farmer, you can still contribute Mm, um, by doing things like SETI at home, where Mm -hmm. you connect your computer through some software to a big network of computers around the globe, and you can help to look for signals coming from extraterrestrials, or you can help us sort galaxies, because it's very difficult to teach computers to sort galaxies, but technically like any five-year-old and most five-year-olds now to use an ipad very well now oh yeah they can help us sort galaxies and we desperately need help like that and it's not just in the astronomy and physical sciences They are also, if you're really into animals, you can go on something called Zooniverse. Mm -hmm. So there's astronomy stuff you can do there. There's helping to track the migration and movement of sea mammals like whales, which are endangered in a lot of places. Tracking them with satellite images, you can help sort through that. There's even things for transcribing. One project that I saw that I really like, people transcribing the notes and writings of American soldiers during the American Civil War. Oh, wow. But especially black soldiers during the American Civil War and getting those records up to date. So if you're a bit of a history buff, you can get involved in that. So there's a lot of research that we really, really would love the general public to get involved in, no matter what your background. You're basically helping us do things that we're desperately trying to teach computers to do, but it's hard. And people are very, very good at recognizing patterns and saying, that's a spiral galaxy, that's a, an elliptical galaxy, that galaxy has rings around it and this one doesn't. And it's surprisingly difficult to teach a computer to do that, but a five-year-old can do that. So do get involved, zooniverse.org, I think it yeah, is. Yeah, I think it is. We'll put the links in the notes. Yeah, and just yeah, find something you like, whether it's animal or mineral, um, there'll be something for you to do.
0: Yeah, and I think it's super exciting now that that just anybody can really, really help with science and you can just get involved and you're genuinely
1: making a difference. Absolutely, because science is for everyone and that's something that we as people must never lose sight of just because you don't have a formal background in research doesn't mean that you can't make a significant contribution.
0: Yeah, for sure. So thanks for that, Tana. That was really awesome. We'll make sure that we put links to all of Tana's research and her Twitter and her company and things like that into the notes that you guys can have a look. Um, And make sure you do shoot her any questions on Twitter because we absolutely love answering astronomy questions, especially if it's something that has been in the back of your mind for forever and you just really want to know. Um, So thanks for that, Tana. And hopefully we'll hear from you again on the Juddcast
1: soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a fun chat. Yeah, for sure.